Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. I couldn't go back to sleep last night. So what do you dream? Forget it, Tina. The point is that everyone has a bad dream once in a while. It's no biggie. Yeah, next time you have one, just tell yourself that's all it is, right? Well, you're having it, you know? Once you do that, you wake right up. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. This is a podcast looking at movies in the franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. Welcome to the World Wide Web. <laughs> and then and, uh, I proceed to kill somebody with like a computer spider on ca- uh, a web made of cable or something. Right, and uh, this time we're <laughs> looking at the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street series. We're not going to do all five million movies, but we're going to look at the first five because they sort of have one consistent uh, story arc to them. And um, yeah, this this original film I haven't seen it in quite some time, and it's sort of surprising to revisit when you compare it to the later ones. Same here. Same here. Yeah, yeah, it came out in '84, uh, directed by Wes Craven, produced by Bob Shea of New Line Cinema, written by Wes Craven. Starring John Saxon, uh, Heather Lagenkamp, uh, Johnny Depp, Robert England. Uh, music by Charles Bernstein. Cinematography by Jax Hatkin. Edited by Patrick McMahon and Nick Shane. And, um, you know, off a budget of, of uh, just shy of $2 million, this made $25.5 million in the U.S., which is, uh, which is really good. And, of course, it, you know that the joke about New Line Cinema is it's the house that Freddy built, but I've also heard the joke, it's the house the Ninja Turtles built. Well, I think thing? up up to that point, this was the biggest success New Line had ever had. Yeah, and I, in, in fact, um, you know, Mick Garris, who's known for directing such a podcast, or not podcast, what am I talking about? Mick Garris <laughs> has directed a lot of those Stephen King miniseries, like The Stand, and uh, also he made his debut with Critters too. but he, he has a show called Postmortem, and he talked to Bob Shea, the former head of, founder of New Line Cinema, and um, Bob Shea said, you know, he started New Line Cinema just to do film distribution on college campuses of public domain films, like Reefer Madness, and, um, and that's how they got started, and eventually they went into making films of their own, and yeah, Nightmare was their first one that really popped in a big way, they were sort of struggling before then, and um, of course they did what any... Uh, company that, you know, once you get a hit, you start churning out those sequels, which uh, <laughs> we'll be talking about in the next few weeks here. So, when did you first see uh, this original Nightmare on Elm Street? I'm not entirely sure, because growing up as I did in the 80s, uh, Freddy Krueger was ubiquitous. I am not sure when the first time I saw this movie was. Uh, I, I, the earliest memory I have of sitting down and watching it would have been late night on cable, probably in the mid-90s or so. Yeah, but, um, but I'm not sure. I, I I know I had seen it before then. 
You know, I know they, they play these on TV, but in my mind, they seem to play the Friday the 13th movies more for some reason, but it could have just been the channel I was watching, which was, like, USA. No, I think, uh, you, I think you may be right. I know, yeah. uh, I know like, uh, back, uh, gro- growing up in, uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, our local, we had a, our local Fox affiliate would show a lot of horror movies, and they did demonstrably show Friday the 13th movies more than they ever showed uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. Um... This one, I, I first watched one, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, like in 2002, 2001, something like that. Freddy vs. Jason was coming out, and uh, that, of course, was a big deal. And uh, so to sort of prep myself, I watched the first couple of uh, Friday the 13th and the first couple of Nightmare on Elm Street films. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's when I first saw it, sort of, with the se- some of the sequels in sequence. And... Uh, sort of like Friday the 13th, which we haven't talked about the show, and I'm sure we will at some point in some fashion. Um, this is not the movie where Fred, Freddy Krueger becomes Freddy Krueger. In fact, in the credits, he's listed as Fred Krueger. He has almost no dialogue. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is more of a, of a creepy picture than sort of a, a over-the-top kind of... Um, I, I don't know, like, how goofy can we get these dream sequences? It's it's far removed from what the series would become, but I even remember that, that uh, during the opening credit sequence, both myself and my wife chuckling at the fact that he's credited as Fred Krueger, and all I could think of was, please, yeah. Fred Krueger's my father's name. You can just call me Freddy. Yeah, it's, uh... I'm, I'm look, I, you know, I've seen the film so many times. This time around, I, I watched it listening to the uh, commentary... Cool. With, uh, it, it was a commentary. I think they had a, a few different ones on the disc, but this is with a variety of producers and, and the director and, and the actors and all these things. And they, they mentioned uh, the initial poster for the film, the mock-up they got from an ad agency, was the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street house, which has become sort of iconic for whatever reason. And uh, it showed a slash across the house, and in the slash you see a woman screaming like no and then the poster said nightmare in elm street and um everyone thought it sucked and so they they went with another ad agency to do a painting and in if you look at this poster and it's listed you know destroyed on wikipedia um although the drawing doesn't look much like the actress that plays nancy it is a creepy sort of picture of she's trying not to fall asleep and then you get this not very odd model uh painting of Fred Krueger's face, but you do to get the claws. Well, even the claws don't look quite right. It, it no, looks they like don't. a robot hand as opposed to a freaky glove. Yeah, but, um, you know, what What Bob Shea mentioned in the commentary, and he's right, is at least it sort of sells the concept of the movie, which is very oh. difficult to do. Oh, um, yeah. Because there's a lot lot going on here, a lot of, um, some surrealism, not as much as we get in other movies. And, uh, and just the, me, you know, the positioning of the claw blades are, are, are very well done on that poster. Yep, and you even get a lens flare on uh, one of the blades on the left. And the tagline, now what do you think of the tagline? If Nancy doesn't wake up screaming, she won't wake up at all. I mean, you're trying to sell the concept. It's okay. I've seen worse. I think the worst tagline I've ever seen, um, I saw a lot of these when I worked at Blockbuster Video, uh, was for... Oh, uh, Mickey Blue Eyes, sort of a mafia comedy starring Hugh Grant. And the tagline was, they've created a mobster. Wow. (laughs) That's 
And I think that's pretty poor. Um, you and I will have to do a special episode one day about I, our I, best I and worst so. taglines. Yeah, I think. My favorite oh, tagline from this series, just because like it was, uh, uh, I think it was every town has an Elm Street. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I haven't. That's creepy. That is huh? creepy. Once you have the the franchise established, right? Um, you know, I haven't looked at a lot of the posters lately. I'll have to make my decision on that later. But um, interesting. Yeah, I mean that that's a pretty good one. This one, you're just trying to sell the concept, and uh, it should be noted. You know this came out in 84. By this time, we had several Halloween movies, several Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Or no, not, that, oh, Friday sorry, the Friday the 13th movies. Um, I think you probably had, you know, the second Psycho, the second or even third Psycho movie had come out by this time. But we had so, one or two Hellraisers by now, hadn't we? Uh, I think you're right, yeah. So, I mean, it, it horror movies had become in vogue. So Nightmare, uh, of course, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre had, had been out by this time. That was one from the 70s that started. So it's not like Nightmare on Elm Street was a new kid on the block. But it, it does have a concept, I think, that's unique enough that, that made it um, stand out. And also you had uh, not only the characters being teenagers, which is common for the genre, but it's in the suburbs, right? Yeah, they're not going low to a camp. They're not mm-hmm. being pulled into the into a big city. It's, it's Dimension, a very, yeah. It's a very mundane setting, and that works in this movie's favor. Right, because you could be watching this and be like, oh, this is kind of like my house or the house my friends live in or something. You know, it, it, it looks bland in the in the best possible way. Let me That's give just... a, a quick uh, plot summary. So there's a, a bunch of teenagers live on an Elm Street, and uh, this group of friends seems to have a, a situation happening where they're having nightmares of this uh, man in a striped sweater with uh, big claws that tries to attack them in their dreams, and the teenagers start dying in their sleep. So to combat this, the teenagers you know, have multiple coffee pots in their bedroom. <laughs> um, they're taking like trucker pill, caffeine pills to stay awake, uh, all sorts of things. And uh, as the teenagers get picked off one by one, uh, they actually find out their um, their parents have something to do with this Fred Krueger they see in the dream, and uh, they have to uh, Nancy has to face off, uh, figure out a way to get rid of Freddy once and for all. Of course, she fails in a way because not only have the twist ending, but we have five million sequels to this. <laughs> that- can I say something that really, really works in this movie's favor? Yeah, go for it. None of the characters are dumb. Even the parents? I was so happy yeah. that no one in this movie is dumb. No one no one makes a, a stupid mistake just to move the story along. The characters are aware of what's happening, and they even approach the problem of, of Freddy Krueger scientifically. Uh, like, for, for instance, when... Uh, me, uh, when uh, uh, Nancy comes up with a system by which essentially they'll sleep in shifts and slap each other awake if anyone gets agitated in their sleep. Like, that's that's brilliant. And it works within the rules of the scenario they're in uh, so, so far as they know them. Now, of course, they're irresponsible teenagers and they still fall asleep on each other. But it's not a dumb mistake. It's not a mistake for the sake of having one. Sure, and, and this, this story, uh, the director writer Wes Craven was inspired by some articles in the L.A. Times about men in Southeast Asia uh, dying in the middle of their nightmares. And, uh, in fact, uh, there's a, a line of dialogue, I think, that Johnny Depp has where he basically describes one of these newspaper stories. Um, so, not yeah, that this is based on a true of... story, but... 
yeah, there's a couple of bits with him kind of bringing out like dream lore and about like lucid dreaming and these like monks who can control what goes on in their dreams. Yeah, he's the basal exposition of the series. So I knew I knew that Johnny Depp was in this movie. Yeah, uh, it wasn't until the third act that I realized who Johnny Depp was playing. Uh, I have gotten so used to seeing him in makeup with fake mustaches <laughs> yes. that him just yes. playing a person. I couldn't recognize him. Well, this was his very first movie, um, and, and he had representation and that sort of thing, but this was even before 21 Jump Street, the original TV show, not the newer comedy movies. And, um, yeah, he, he's okay. He's, he's sort of baby-faced in this, too, and he, he's skinnier. Um, and and he's, I don't think he's that great. He's sort of bland. Uh, but I, I will say he does look more like a teenager than some of the other actors, you know, in the tradition of Hollywood movies, you have people in their twenties or perhaps even thirties playing teenagers. And it's well, not as, another, another no. reason why I couldn't spot him. I mean, he does look the proper age. Yeah. And I don't think that's always the case with the other, and Heather Lake, Camp was, was younger too, but I think the other, um, uh, teens we see in the movie look a bit older, um, Especially the guy in the greaser jacket. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's get into it, shall we? We have, um, yeah, I, well, I, I do want to mention, uh, people don't talk about the music in this movie enough, and I, I don't think it's like a classic score, but the main Elm Street theme with the synthesizer I think is pretty cool, and that's by Charles Bernstein. Yeah, the, the uh, Elm Street leitmotif is already in full effect, and it's done very well. And they use it all over the place. <laughs> well, not overwhelmingly, but it's just a nice, just subtle do, 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 whenever, whenever something kind of creepy happens. You know, actually, it's almost a throwback, because it sounds like a, like a radio sting from Arch Obler's Lights Out. Oh, that's true. Um, the, the other main piece of music they use in this film, and they keep it for the sequels, is sort of, uh, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock the door. Oh, yeah, the and Freddy Krueger rhyme that shows up from time to time. Yep. And I've forgotten that that was introduced into the series so early. It is. They, 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 you know, they don't focus on it as much as in, in the other films. And, um, in fact, the, the set I have of the movies has a few episodes from the Elm Street, or whatever, Nightmare on Elm Street TV show. Is it Elm Street oh, Freddy's Nightmares? Nightmares yeah. Freddy's Nightmares. And um, it might have the episode on there that's a prequel, about Fred Krueger as a human that was directed by Toby Hooper, but I'll have to see. Um, I believe that was the first episode of the series was yes, the detailed yeah. Freddy Krueger origin story. But I think otherwise the stories didn't always have much to do with Freddy Krueger, and he just sort of he was sort of the crypt keeper, right? Introducing the... Uh, yeah, the I mean, it was mostly him doing host segments. Mm-hmm. With uh, lots of terrible puns. Okay, let's... Including one where he's a, he's a rapper. Uh, I, I saw that clip, actually, yeah. That's um, <laughs> not very good. Uh, okay, so... We have, um, I, how do you want to talk about this film, just chronologically? Because it kind of goes all over the place with the characters and the nightmares and people getting killed and well, we family can, we can dynamics. Try to, we can try to kind of keep, okay. keep a, a flow going. Uh, but but that's, that's something that I, I kind of wanted to save till later, but maybe we should jump into it now. How sure. much of this movie is quote-unquote real and how much do you think is a dream? Um... As, 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 the the question. Goes, as the movie goes on, 
they do some neat, subtle transitions between the characters being awake and the characters being asleep. And sometimes you don't exactly know what mode you're in. To the point where I'm kind of wondering, I, I feel like the third act is entirely a dream. There's things about the third act I really don't like, but I want to save it for when we get there. Gotcha. Uh, but we, we start off following uh, someone who's not the main character, but they, she's sort of more the focus in the beginning. Tina Gray, and it's, you know, as far as, as dreams go, it's the, the, sort of the, the boiler room tends to be Freddy's headquarters, for, as it was. And, and we, uh, get, we get the origin story of Freddy's glove right off the bat. Yeah, over the end credits, right? You see oh, the sort opening of the montage, the opening credits, yeah. But yeah, just, we, we just get that nice hissing steam sound, the hammer on metal sound as we see the the glove being assembled by an unseen figure. Yeah, in some ways it's not so different from, uh, it reminds me a bit of the Conan the Barbarian opening credits where you see the sword being forged, although not as dramatic. But it's just it's just it's just neat seeing a person lost in this environment that we haven't we haven't really been formally introduced to yet. I mean, it, it's nice it's nice to have a horror movie that starts you out by getting you a little bit discombobulated and and confused and disoriented. Because we don't have get, any context for anything that's happening in this opening. You don't, and you hear the hissing from the boiler room. You see all the smoke. You uh, hear you know Freddy's. Lat voice, which is pitched down a bit from Robert England's real voice, but in, with a bit of an echo effect. And uh, Tina's being chased, and she gets, you know, her her shirt gets scratched, and then she wakes up, and that scratch is still in her nightgown, which I think is a good way to start. Because, uh, yeah, you're just as lost as the main characters. You don't know what is happening. You're not also, given, like... Also- God. It's also setting up, up the, the, the rules for the horror, the idea that what happens to you in this dream state overlaps with what happens to you in the real world. Right, and you're not given like a textual at the beginning explaining Fred Krueger was murdered by these people on this year because he did this, this, and this, right? Yeah, they really hold off on revealing that. They do, and I think the way they reveal it just through a dialogue scene is probably because they couldn't afford to do a flashback, otherwise I think maybe they would have. Um, but yeah, it's, so I think it's an effective beginning. It's not bloody, and in fact this film... Oh no, I was going to say this film isn't bloody, but that's not true. Um, so I, I take that back. And the next morning we sort of see the, the, the main group of friends in the show, and um, not only do we have Tina, but we have um, Nancy, who's played by Heather Lagenkamp. Uh, Tina is played by... Amanda, Amanda Weiss. Weiss. Amanda Weiss. Weiss, yes, thank you. Um, and then uh, Nancy's boyfriend is Glenn, who's played by Johnny Depp. And Tina's boyfriend is Rod, which they make some funny jokes with his name, I think, uh, played by Nick Corey. So what do you think about the acting of the main kids in this? Overall, it works. You know, they, they, they might not look the part, but I do... I do, I do. You kind of buy their behavior and their acting as just generally, generally clever kids who are quickly getting in over their heads. Right. It's um, it, Wes Craven did a good job with his directing of keeping the acting pretty grounded. You do have characters crying and stuff, but some of that is they're going crazy from the lack from sleep deprivation. And um, I'm not a big fan of of uh, Nick's. Corey's performance is Rod. 
He just looks like someone out of Greece. I think the he's definitely a type, and he's not a main character, but uh, I think it's yeah, very he's, funny he's later very on. Anachronistic, yeah. I mean, he, he, isn't he? Be, yeah. If this was like a late nineteen fifties Roger Corman horror movie, he'd be more at home there. He'd fit right in. Um, I do think it's quite funny. We get sort of a a scene where um, Nancy and Glenn are in the basement, and then up above in the bedroom. Tina and Rod are having sex, and you sort of hear what they're saying. They're going, and she goes, "Oh God, oh Rod," and then when um, he dies in his dream, she says the same thing: "Oh God, oh Rod." So <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice it, echo, but that that, that <laughs> scene is some nice comic relief. And the other the other thing yes. I love uh, is that this this does defy a lot of the the, the cliches of a slasher movie. And that Freddy doesn't care if you've had sex or not. He's going to kill you anyway. And I think they had to do that to differentiate itself from Friday the 13th, which that's not the only reason why people get killed, but it's certainly a motivation fact, a motivating factor in, in those movies, and people have written essays and books on, on that symbolism, with the, just, you know, I, Jason's I, knife being a phallic object. I just, I just love that... I love that. I love the, the good kids are under as much you know, threat as the quote-unquote bad kids. Right. I mean, so what, what do you think of the whole thing where they think Rod kills Tina? I think it's, I think it's completely understandable to, to the point where I feel like you could do a whole film about Rod being on the run from the law and trying to clear his name. Yeah, because Rod doesn't that up in this way. film from lo- for long stretches, but that is because he is hiding from the police because he's the number one suspect in Tina's death. Right, and uh, you know, and as as she's thrashing back and forth in the bed, it reminds me a bit of um, Linda Blair's thrashing in the bed at The Exorcist. Which okay, so I don't I don't know if you've ever been woken up in the middle of the night by someone else's vivid nightmare, but that is terrifying, and and the, I think the film handles that scene very well. I haven't, but you know I have. Um, you are lucky. Sleep apnea, and if I don't use, if I forget to put on my machine, um, I get sort of. Uh, my wife will wake me up, and she. I'd love to see footage of what I look like, but she was saying, you know, I often like thrash back and forth, very violent sort of twitching things. I imagine it's something like what we see Tina do uh, in, in the film, and uh, and 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 Tina's. Um, I I love how she gets like taken out of the bed, and she gets dragged around on the ceiling. And, oh, I know. It's like, yeah, like it's not cool. Like you don't and can really I also know what's applaud happening. this movie for having thick red blood. Yes, yeah, it's uh, this is blood. very it doesn't look close brown, to real like blood. real blood. It's just uh, almost like the Italian horror, right? It just gushes and gushes. Yeah, it's like like the giallos, but but clearly it's not red paint. Sure. Um, also, is it um, is it when Tina's sleeping or is it when Nancy's sleeping where we get the, the cool sort of imagery of you see Freddy's head kind of poke out from behind the uh, the ceiling? Uh, that, I believe that is in, in one of... Uh, so that, that might be later. One of Nancy's uh, yeah. sleep scenes. But yeah, no, that's, that's a, a great effect where he, he's like protruding through the ceiling. Uh, and, it's, and it's cut so well... It's like it's, it's difficult, difficult to spot, to spot the. Uh, it's it's 
you're, you're not you're aware of the transitions. You're not aware of the cut so much. So, so when she reaches up and touches the ceiling, the ceiling it, your, your brain does get fooled into thinking she should be touching the special effects ceiling, which is touching something very solid. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty well done. So, you know, Rod is arrested by um, Nancy's father, I think, right? Who's a cop played by John, played by John Saxon. Yeah, John Saxon. Don Thompson. And John Saxon, I know from Enter the Dragon as the white guy, the white hero in that movie. Um, he, he's good. Co-star. He is. He, he plays it completely straight. And, and, and so do most of the actors, even including uh, Robert England as, as Freddy Krueger. Oh, I know, like, he, he, because he, even Freddy does get some one-liners, but it's he's not the quip monster he would become. And I think also, in, in this way, they make Freddy sound, it's so, I mean, it could just be my speaker system or something, it might, might, might have too, um, might have my mix too heavy on the bass. But I found Freddy sort of difficult to understand when he speaks, like, they seem to mix it really low and distorted. Uh, I, I did, too. I think that comes down to the way they, they seasoned his audio track. Right, so they might have, you know, laid it on a bit thick, because they... It's the first movie in what would... They didn't design this to be a franchise, but it did. And they sort of... As he gets more lines, it makes sense. They make him easier to understand. Um, we get the... Uh, when One of the early dreams Nancy has with Fred Krueger. They're sort of in a... Um, in like a backyard or something, and we see Fred Freddy Krueger have his arms spread really wide... They look like accordions or something. It, it, it's, it's like Beetlejuice when he does the mallet hand. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it quite... I think it looks sillier than it's intended, but it's certainly strange. You're like, what is happening? I don't, I don't well, they, they do lay on just some bizarre dream imagery, and they don't work too hard to try to, to, make, to make things kind of flow together in the dream sequences. They're, they're con- Craven is content to let a lot of the dream images be uh, inexplicable, like Freddy walking out from behind a tree that's too thin for him to hide behind in a very Bugs Bunny moment, or that scene where Fred is standing in like a pile of filth and snakes, and it's just so grotesque. Because the, the filth is just thick enough that you can't quite tell that they're snakes. You can't see any identifying anatomical features. So it's just you know, grotesque. And we have... Um... You know, as character, as you know, Nancy is is disturbed that her her friend Tina has been is is dead, and she falls. She's trying not to fall asleep, but she falls asleep in class and and go and gets in uh, Freddy's boiler room. And to wake herself up from the dream, she burns her arm on the pipe, but that gives her a you know like a second degree burn in real life, or or bruise at least in her arm. Uh, no, no, she does have that burn, and that burn is consistent throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, good detail, and and that's an okay sequence. What I think is more effective is her in the bathtub falling asleep. Oh, that scene is terrifying because she locks the door when she takes a bath, and you know, and you get, it's a good example of good writing because you get the setup because the mom's like, "Don't fall asleep in the bath," and she's like, "I'm not, mom, I'm not," but she has like a pillow thing, which I've never seen those before, but I guess it, oh, bath pillow. Yeah, but um, I guess because I've lived in a house for seven years where the bathtub doesn't work, you can take a shower, <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> you can't take a bath, or at least if you take one, it better be quick. Cause it... Now, what's wrong with it? Because I can do some basic plumbing. I can come over oh, okay. for a visit, we can hang out, do a barbecue, yeah, and yeah. Take a picture tub. Right. Uh, I think what's happening is uh, maybe I just need to buy like a new stopper. It could be just as simple as that, but the... 
the, oh, the here's stopper. your problem. You got yourself a Kruger in your tub. Oh, okay. I got the Kruger. I, yeah, and I even tried one of those little pipes to take the hair out to uh, oh. clog the thing. And uh, even got a little piece of Freddy's eye and his green blood on there. It's pretty gross. <laughs> but in all seriousness, so the, bath, the bathtub scene. Uh, f- first, it's, it's just frightening seeing that iconic Freddy glove running out of the water. But in between her legs, who, yeah. As, as a person who has had a number of nightmares about drowning and who has almost drowned twice, uh, just that, that, that awesome, just the way things are shot, when she is pulled down into the water in the tub and then we cut to the below shot where it's like a cavern with like a tub-shaped cutout in the ceiling. That, that's just this perfect, horrifying, abyssal image. So good imagery. I want to ask you, uh, would you mind talking about one of the times when you almost drowned? Well, I'll do. I'll go ahead and do the one that that is almost comical. So uh, okay. there, there's a, uh, a water park, uh, Wild Water Rapids, that we used to check out. We used to take like at least like two trips there every summer, uh, back back home in Virginia, and it was just it was really really fun. But they had a, a, a wave pool. But there was one year it just got it got ridiculously crowded. And the wave pool was full of people in those giant inner tubes. And yes. the short version is, I'm in, I'm in the wave pool having a good time. And one of so, the ways so in this I, scenario, you're not in the inner tube, is that right? No, no, I'm not in the inner tube. I'm I was just see. trying okay. to swim, but yeah. I got, but you could barely swim because it was so, it was so crowded mm. that year. Mm-hmm. So what, one of the waves came by, and I got sucked underwater, and oh. I couldn't get up because there was always an inner tube in my way. Yeah, uh, and I was really, I was really, really starting to panic, uh, and I, I, I had to force myself like between an inner tube and a raft to get out of the water, and everybody's just giving me these horrifying, these these very like angry, disapproving looks, like why am I ruining their good time, uh, despite the fact that I'm coughing up water, uh, and trying desperately to get to a ladder, uh, and uh, the inner tubes aren't parting, uh, and. I'm, I'm kind of too. I, I was I was real young too. I think I was eight or nine, and I was not. Mm. I, I I was I was frightened enough that I wasn't going to go back under the water to try to swim under everybody to get to a ladder. Yeah, I had um, a, a situation happen to me. I think I was like fourteen years old. I was at the beach. Uh, just uh, I think I had, I had family members or relatives or something uh, sort of reading a book on the beach. I was in the ocean. And all of a sudden, this uh, big wave, I wasn't paying attention, surprised me, sucked me under the wave, and I got caught sort of in that undercurrent. And I I remembered from my uh, whitewater rafting trips, they say, you know, to get yourself in a ball and, you know, just sort of wait it out because I feel like I I tried to struggle some, but I could tell that was going nowhere, and I did that. And... uh, I'm sure it wasn't that long, but it felt like forever. It felt like time slowed down. It was a really strange feeling. And, and by the time I got sort of spit out of the undercurrent of the wave, I was um, like a fifth of a mile down from where I started. <laughs> I was like taken sideways. And your Dan uh, Patterson novel was never seen or heard from again. That's right. But, uh, but it was a scary um, thing. And I don't know if I felt like I could have died, but it was like, you know, I didn't know what was happening. And you have that way that under a current of the wave, I mean, that's sort of a similar thing with you, where it sort of pulls you back, pushes you out, pulls you back, pushes you out. And, uh, yeah, and I thought, well, 
would someone be concerned trying to help me? And like, nope, nope. Everyone was enjoying <laughs> their uh, their beers on the beach. And uh, I sort of, you know, coughed and had to take my breath, take a seat for a second and head head back and uh, went back in the ocean again because that's just what you do with, uh, especially with the water in, uh, I think it was Sarasota, Florida. So you get the warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, I have family uh, my grandma lives down there, and my dad is helping her move into her new condo. And uh, he says, uh, because of all the hurricane stuff, it's making the water really warm. The ocean water uh, off the coast of Sarasota, Florida, is now uh, 85 degrees warm, which is really warm for the ocean. feels like you're taking a hot bath. Uh, makes you feel almost sickly if you're used to freezing water, but I, I'm a baby. I like warm water. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about ocean water. We should be talking about... Nightmare on Elm Street, but the drowning experiences, eh, it's somewhat related. So, but I'm just, I'm just going to say that this this is very true to a drowning experience. Yeah, yeah, it, and the way she thrashes, and we get sort of the, we, we see her, she, it, you know, like the, the bathtub below is, is like a big ocean thing. I mean, yeah, it's very, uh, very creepy, and it, it's something that I, I do think, especially in this first film in the series, they base uh, a lot of the dream sequences on what what the death is, what the, you know, what, what or not what, the, what am I talking about? Um, I haven't got much sleep. What or do you think the, that they're based on more of like a, a primal fear? I, I'm sorry, yeah, yes, more primal fears, more common things people statistically have nightmares about. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, there's, there's a gag throughout the film, which I think is sort of tired, but maybe it was novel at the time this movie came out, where the boyfriend climbs up the house and goes into the window to so they can see each other. And um, we have uh, Glenn sort of sneaks in, and he watches Nancy to make sure that she doesn't, like, if she falls asleep, if she has a nightmare, that he's going to wake her up. You know, he's not going to be passive like Rod was. Right. And, uh, but on the other hand, like, they're both really asleep. They're both sleep-deprived and doing whatever they can to stay awake. And in, uh, go on. Oh no! Just just that I, I like I like seeing the steps that they take uh, to stay awake, like Nancy's coffee pot, or or in, in Rod's case, when he's he's up at night and he's listening to music while watching the TV. He's trying to give himself so much stimulation that he can't tune it out, and it keeps him awake. Yeah, and it's nice he has you know the record player, which would have been it, it's a record player. It's not cassette tapes, but he has those big cans on his ears, and. Uh, at the time, you know, they didn't they didn't have iPads back then, of course, but those, those little miniature TV things that still weighed, I don't know, like 15 pounds would have been the closest you could have to a portable TV in your bed. Oh, yeah, they, they, they were skull-cracking heavy. Yeah, yeah. My um, mom used to have one. Oh, did she? Uh, I've known people that had TVs like that in their kitchen. They could watch their soaps while they were making dinner. Um, so we in Nancy's dream, she sees that Freddy Krueger is going to try and get Rod... And we get, um, Rod gets a strangulation death. Yeah, that's because he's been, he's been caught by the police because he tried to contact Nancy. Uh, and right at school, which is pretty stupid, really. It's one, it's one of those things where you, you do, you start to question, you start to question whether or not Nancy might in fact be deluded because, you know, we see, she sees, uh, uh, Rod's bedsheet in the lockup animate and, and strangle him. 
Uh, and yet, what if that's not the case? What if Rod has actually attempted suicide, and this is just Nancy's delusion trying to trying to explain away that occurrence? That's right, because this isn't like one of these um, sequences we'll get later where the room is painted in blood. Uh, it, it's a very mundane thing, and then you know, sadly, people in prison uh, commit suicide at some. You know, that's a I don't know if it's a common, but it's not an uncommon occurrence. So, um, yeah, it's it's really too bad. I don't, and I think this you could view that as just a plain suicide because it's not nothing supernatural about it. They're like, oh, it's just a shame, all these kids are dying. But you know, you could see a teenager under a lot of stress, and uh, you just can't take it. Or, or whatever reason, or he has mental illness, or whatever's happening, and that yeah, he kills himself. Because I was really trying to watch this with fresh eyes, as if it was the only Nightmare on Elm Street film ever made, mm. and that was a thought that kept that kept occurring to me: is what if what if Nancy has is under so much mental trauma? What if there's nothing supernatural going on? What if this is her? Using delusion to sort of ex- to explain away these awful things that are happening in her life. Well, I do like what they do here with the. Um, you mentioned the science stuff. They take her to a sleep clinic. Again, and, uh, the characters are smart. <laughs> yeah, and you know the the mother is concerned about her daughter not getting sleep, or when she's sleeping, she's getting nightmares. And I've actually had this test done. I mentioned I have sleep apnea. I use one of those machines. I did a, a sleep test in a laboratory and. Uh, they really do that, where they, they hook up... I mean, the process isn't that different, you know, 30-something years later. Uh, they hook up all these wires to you. Uh, you can't really move or twist and turn that much as you're sleeping. Um, the bed is often quite uncomfortable. They often Ugh. have the temperature freezing, and they don't give you enough blankets. Uh, so, I mean, what it's trying to simulate, I don't know. <laughs> that's, uh, that's sort of strange. But um, they go, and... Uh, you know, we see that the dream she encounters Freddie again, but she um, she grabs onto his hat and she wakes up with the hat in the real world. And, and that and that is that so, so it's 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 so interesting that, that Nancy does have tangible proof that that a lot of these things are happening by coming back uh, with the hat. And yet, this was also the point at which I was wondering: Well, is is she still dreaming? If, mm. if the phys- you know pulling something out of a dream turning nothing into solid matter is impossible so what if this is still part of part of the delusion what if this is a false lead making Nancy think that she has the ability to b- carry things over from uh, the dream world into the physical that could be I didn't never thought about that I mean this also sort of sets up uh, what we eventually see in the third act, where it's like, well, if this guy's just in your dreams, how do, how do you get rid of him? How do you keep all these teens from dying? And um, uh, we also should... No, go, go on. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, we didn't mention that Nancy is the daughter of parents that are divorced, right? She lives with her mother, who's an alcoholic, but her father is a cop. But um, ooh, well, Were they guess, divorced or were they having a physical separation? I couldn't... I listened to the commentary. They say divorced. They don't make it obvious in the movie, though. That that's true. That is very true. Because the father is, um, and, and you know, some divorces are like this, where the father is still present in the life of the kid. They don't just leave town, and um, and and the mother, you know, just sort of says, "Oh, honey, you need some sleep. That's it." And but she also just, um, you know, hides bottles of vodka in the towel rack. In the towel oh, closet, yeah. which I thought was a nice touch, a pretty realistic touch. 
Um, and uh, I, I don't, I mean, the mother is negligent. I don't think she's a bad person. She's just, uh, that's what, that's her coping mechanism, and she pushes it a bit hard. And she overdoes it. Now, the one thing about the hat that is a little bit too convenient is that it has Fred Krueger's name written Yeah. There. So how do you think, uh, what do you think about the um, Fred Krueger sort of reveal where we get the, the scene explaining who he is from the mother? I, I love that because it's, it's a very real kind of horror. That there was a that that many years ago there was a there was a, a local groundskeeper named Fred Krueger who turns out was a serial killer and had killed a few local kids. Uh, he was found. He was arrested, but due to uh, due to a technicality involving an improperly signed warrant, uh, he was allowed to walk. Uh, and so. A bunch of the parents, uh, Nancy's parents included, which makes so many of her father and mother's behaviors early on make so much more sense when you realize that they're completely in on it. They tracked Kruger down where he was hiding out in this old warehouse or factory or wherever, and they set the building on fire with him trapped inside. And then everyone just kind of agreed never to speak of it again. Sure. And like to, to have that moment when like a parent confides in you that they are part of a, a, a not only a murder, but a conspiracy to cover up a murder that involves so many of the people in your town. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's and that's what helps. It helps with Freddy Krueger's uh, motivations, too, because he's not just half-handedly punishing the bad kids. No, he's punishing the parents by going after the kids. It's, it's all vengeance, and that just makes everything so much more horrific. Right, and it's, it's, um, I think we mentioned this before, but it's interesting how they sit on that information for a long time. Yeah. Now, I have to, I have to ask... So you know they they always specify he's he's a child killer. Do you do you think that they wanted it to be that he was a a, a child molester and then they changed it to killer? Do you think like that would have been too dark? I think so. I mean, certainly. Um, I guess because what it is in, is in, like, in the remake think... they they say they say the molesting things, and I forget where they stand in later films. Um. But it, yeah, I mean, the phrase child killer, you don't hear often in the news, but child molester, you hear a lot, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, I mean, just the phrase child killer, I think, sounds so artificial. Yeah, especially since, like, some, a lot of his taunting of Nancy is, is weirdly sexual, like the, like the infamous tongue through the phone scene. Yes, it is. And, um, I mean, certainly you, I don't know if the character seems to have a sex drive or not, but he goes after pretty girls a lot of the time. So, um, and, and boys for that matter. So who knows? Like it's, do you, do you wish they would have said that instead? I don't know. Cause there is a part of me that does feel like that probably would have been too dark. Um, especially for the time of this film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so I, I really don't know. Although, although at the same time, 
I do find it laughable to, to, to believe that an improperly signed warrant would, would allow a would allow a serial killer of children to just walk. Now yeah, I can that's understand maybe maybe they can't hold him, but he would still be under investigation. <laughs> They'd get a new warrant signed. Right. It's uh it's it's a weird thing to bring up. I just think they have to you know, that, that, that part of the story had not been fleshed out enough by this movie. But in, in some of the sequels, we get flashbacks. And um, we even learn about Fred Krueger's mother in, in some of the sequels coming up. So, We'll, we'll save that for what happens. The Bastard Son of a Thousand Maniacs or something? Wasn't that? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a, talk about terrible origin stories, if you think. If you think this is dark, just wait. Um, but I just, I just love, I, but I, I love the fact that, that this is all happening because a group of adults conspired to commit a murder. Yeah. The sins of the the father, you know, falls on the son, or in this case, you know, the daughter. But yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and that you know that, and also that the town, the suburbs. You think the suburbs are safe, but they don't have as innocent as a past as you believe. Yep. Um, uh, which is a, a good thematic thing. Um, the end of this film, I think, is is very silly. So we, we have set up that in the dreams, if she holds on to something, it comes back in the real life, like with the hat. And um, part of the end of the film is a little bit like Home Alone, because she sets up some, some traps. And, you know, Johnny Depp's character does get a book about how to rig traps. Like, they do set it up, kind of. But I, it just I, strikes I me that. as silly. I love that trap rigging book. So I don't. I don't know if you've ever been at like an uh, uh, an American Legion or a National Guard base or, or even like a, like an Army base. But the the military prints these like educational pamphlets with stuff like that. Um, Joe Joe Kuber, the the famous Marvel comic book artist, he has a whole side business where he makes educational comics for the military, and they're all full of things like that. Like it's a comic book where they explain to you like how to sabotage a diesel engine or how to make a water filter uh, if you're in the jungle and you don't know where to get clean water. It's... It, like, those books exist, and I'm glad that this movie knows that and brings that knowledge in. Well, famously, um, Stan Lee was one of a small group of creative writers uh, when they were in the, the military, I think, during World War II. Um, having, they, they would write those sort of uh, comic strips, and uh, the one Stan Lee likes to talk about in interviews is that it has the phrase, VD, not for me. And it says um, how to avoid venereal disease, but if you have it, how to uh, get the get the nurses to take care of it and so forth. It's um, I'd love to read that. I've never done that, but yeah, uh, I've just, never just... read that book. But I bet it'd be funny. I was if we could find it, though. I'm just imagining VD. It's not for me, true believers. Right, and uh, I mean some of the people that he was stationed with in the military because it was a very small group of writers. I think one of which was Hemingway. And um, Stan, they mentioned really? Stan Lee was notable for he'd finish all his he'd his really fast writer he'd finish all his stuff before lunch times, and then he would have cocktails and then go to the golf course, now, or you know go to the rec room I guess. Um, yeah, because he was I believe he was stationed at a uh, radio listening post. Right. So I golf course I was. Exact, I guess I mean that's when he was actually writing the Marvel comics itself. But yeah, he would get his stuff done before lunch. 
so we'd have the rest of the day free. <laughs> it was very fast. But anyway, but so so these so yeah, she she home alones her house, which is so that's one thing that's kind of neat is because when all this crazy stuff starts happening, her parents make a physical change to the house when they install bars on the windows. I like that. Um, After the whole incident where her boyfriend comes over. And I like that now she's making alterations of the house, rigging up those traps. And I remember watching this. There's a scene where one of the traps she rigs is she puts gunpowder from a shotgun shell into a light bulb and puts that light bulb into a lamp. And I like it, and and I I, I I like leaned forward in my seat. It was like, no, that's dangerous. <laughs> uh, we we didn't neglect to mention, you know, one of the most famous deaths of the movie is uh, Johnny Depp as the Glenn, her boyfriend. And oh he, yeah. He tries not to sleep, but he does. And the claws get him, I think, from beneath the bed. Is that right? Yeah, like he comes up from beneath, but he gets sucked into the bed, which becomes this bottomless sinkhole. That's right. And then when his parents come in, it turns into a fountain <laughs> of blood that yeah. fills the ceiling. It's a great gag. A lot of more blood than uh, 10 humans would have. It's just oh, ridiculous. And- and this is okay. So this is filmmaking on a budget. So the scene where Tina died, where she's being dragged across the ceiling, they built a small bedroom set that could rotate to facilitate those shots. Yep. It's the same set redressed for the Fountain of Blood. Makes sense. And like you really have to look to spot it because they very deliberately film that set from different angles uh, than in, for, for both death scenes. Uh, but that fountain of blood is amazing. I love the little character moment we get, um, before we get to the very end here where, um, the mother goes in and and notices there's a coffee machine brewing in her, in Nancy's bedroom and she takes it out. And then as soon as the mom leaves, uh, Nancy takes a second coffee machine from under her bed and plugs it in. I just think it shows, you know, these kids aren't stupid, they're clever. I mean, and the parents aren't stupid either. They're trying to do what they think is best for their kids, but... Well, also, uh, Nancy hiding the coffee machine, it echoes her mother hiding the bottle of vodka in the linen closet. I never thought of that, but that's a good point. Um, it's a one... Like, th- there are so many parallels and echoes and threads going throughout this film. I absolutely love it. But yeah, so Nancy booby traps her house, and of course, everybody, all the police are investigating the the crime scene at uh, at, her, at her boyfriend's place, at, at at Glenn's place. That's right. Where and I love that they never show after the fountain of blood. They never show the bedroom. They only talk about people's reactions to seeing the bedroom. No, the, the one of the cops was puking his guts out or something. No, right? the, the county coroner was in the bathroom vomiting. Yeah, uh, and like nobody wants to go in the bedroom, and everybody's getting horrified. Um, but yeah, then of course, then we get what we think is going to be the final confrontation with, with Fred Krueger, where Nancy's got her plan. She's going to grab hold of Fred Krueger in the dream, wake herself up, and pull Fred Krueger into the physical world, which is both a brilliant idea and a stupid idea. <laughs> because then you'd have a dream killer in the physical world. I can't... I, I, you know what I would like? Not to get ahead of myself. I would almost like it if... That's what Fred wanted to have happen, that this whole oh, that would be thing cool. yeah. was him trying to get, for lack of a better term, resurrected in the real world by having having one of his victims cross him over. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, I, I do like, though, when Freddie's chasing her in the house, she looks out the barred window and, and shouts uh, across the street, which is where her boyfriend's house is, like, I need, I need police here, I need police here. And the cop is like, what? No, we're, we're busy doing something. And she's like, get my father, you asshole. 
Everyone's kind of blasé about it, and yet, with all the crazy stuff that's been happening, I can understand the police thinking, you know, I know know she's the lieutenant's daughter, but she keeps crying wolf. This is just another one of those. Right. And it's it's an interesting point. Um, So so we get, so she she deliberately puts herself to sleep. She's in the boiler room again, in in front of the furnace, which... uh, just, I just, we we've had a lot of furnace imagery here, such as the the parents' furnace where they they've hidden Freddie's glove, the only piece of evidence from the murder. Uh, we have it here in the dream world, and I love her taunting Freddie, trying to lure him out. Like I love her taking charge like that. Yeah, it's really good. But it, you know, and she she, she grabs hold of him, she wakes herself up, but Freddie's, but like Freddie's not immediately there. At first, she thinks she's failed. And this is, again, another one of those moments of where how do we know she's not dreaming this whole final confrontation where Freddy's chasing her through the house? Right. I, I, I never like the conceit of Freddy in the real world because that just, the whole point is that he's strong in his dream, uh, in the dreamscapes. But, but it's cool. We get, when, we get to see all the traps work. We see him get whacked by a hanging sledgehammer. We see, we see him uh, stand next to the exploding lamp. I was so glad that that paid off. Yeah, it's, it's a bit Looney Tunes. I, don't, I just don't think it works as well. In, you know, in the dream world, anything is possible. In the real world, she has the advantage, which I'm sure is the, the whole point of setting up the conflict like this. But it, it, it just, I don't know, I think it's lacking something. I can't, I can't quite describe what that is. Well, it kind of goes all over the place because then, you know, like Freddie supposedly goes after her. Freddie go, does go after her mother, and there's that, that neat, creepy scene of the corpse sinking into the bed. And then we have, if this were if this were like an after-school special, this would kind of be the ending where teen, where uh, Nancy kind of comes to the realization that the only reason Freddie's able to hurt her is because she's afraid of him. So she, she steals her nerve and, she's, you know, you know, states, you know, you have no power over me. And Freddy, Freddy lunges at her, but can't touch her and just fades away. Yep. Um, I think the plot twist of the mom vanishing is a good one. Well, yeah, that's true. Cause it does, it does, it would, would make you think, well, if we don't see her murdered, then that, then maybe she can be back at the end because at the end, Things get almost too perfect. It's very Warden June Cleaver. Her mother's fine and has given up alcohol, and everything's bright and sunny. Uh, then Heather's gonna, or then Nancy's gonna go to school. She goes outside. All of her friends are alive and pull up in a convertible that we've never seen before. She gets into the convertible, and then it starts turning into a cartoon again because the hood of the convertible comes up, and it's got Freddie's. It's got the same stripe pattern as Freddie's sweater. And you come to realize that this is another nightmare. Yep. So her, you know, being brave and stealing her nerves, it may not have done anything. That could have just been Freddie toying with her. Hmm. But you know, rather rather than giving us a literal hand out of hand out of a grave moment, uh, we see we see Nancy has more or less been tricked into a situation she can't escape from, and we can only assume that this time she is actually going to die. Now you have to have to wonder. So her, all of her friends in the convertible, and this is me being obsessed with dream physics. Uh, 
are are they just hallucinations and part of the dreams, or are they, for lack of a better term, the spirits of all of her dead friends? Oh, I don't know. Just keep in mind, this oh-so-perfect ending, everyone in it is somebody who who died, including presumably her mother. Yep. We don't see her father, we don't see the deputies, we don't see the, the teachers or any of the casual acquaintances. Hmm. Good point. Yeah, I would give this film a sequel, yes. I think it's uh, it holds up. It's, um, you know, different from some of the sequels. It's it's interesting to see where it started and what it, the series becomes. And we'll get into that as we discuss, you know, the first five films over the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, I'm going to give it a sequel, yes, as well. I, I loved this. I, yeah, I loved this movie. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be tainted by my experiences with the later Nightmare films and what the series has become. But this is a, this is a great movie. You cannot tarnish a classic. Well, the remake is pretty bad, but we'll, some other time we'll talk about that. Well, well it tarnished itself. It did. It did. So, interesting. Right. So, I mean, how, how do you do a sequel to this then? What's your pitch of sequel? My pitch of sequel? Okay, so I'm fascinated by the scene with the, uh, with the sleep study. I think that that's a scene that offers some um, very interesting possibilities. So my, my premise for the sequel is that the scene in the sleep study wasn't a dream. That actually happened. And the scientist conducting the sleep study has become obsessed because he just saw matter created from nothing. Uh, so he's trying to, he's trying to reproduce that phenomenon, the idea that you can pull stuff over from dreams. And he comes to realize the only, and he starts piecing things together, looking at these mystery murder, these mystery inexplicable murders. So he figures, well, only, it seems to be that only teenagers can do this. So he whips the local, he whips the local parents and moral guardians into a frenzy about, about, their, their teenager sleeping habits because, you know, we did see what desperate lengths these kids were willing to go to. So it's kind of like the, the satanic panic or the anti-drug craze. Like, Your kids could be trying to keep themselves up and that could kill them. So he essentially uses this moral panic to get all the parents to sign up all their kids for a special sleep clinic. So you get all the teenagers locked into the sleep center at night where he's going to be try, he's going to be injecting them with different sedative cocktails trying to get them to have dreams where he can bring things over and freddy is going to take full advantage of this and this time freddy is the one who wants to be brought over he wants to physically live again uh, and be and be out of the dream world so we get we get the two sides of things where the scientist is performing unethical experiments on the teenagers to try to to try to prove how you can pull stuff out of dreams and you have Freddy you have Freddy essentially trying to trick a kid into bringing him over and he, Freddy can't just like strike a bargain with them although one of the kids will try to bargain with Freddy and essentially when the kids start to realize what's going on this kid will turn traitor and will try to sneak like sleeping pills or set other sedatives into kids into the other kids systems 
essentially Freddy, Freddy's trying to create a circumstance whereby he convinces some other kids to try what Nancy did. He's trying to convince them to let themselves be bait and to pull Freddy into the real world. And that is going to, that's going to be the horror of the ending. At the end of the movie, that is going to happen. And Freddy is only going to take one victim when he enters the physical world. He's going to kill the scientist because the scientist is the only person who knows enough about dreams to know how to potentially send Freddy back. And Freddy is then going to leave the sleep center and it's going to be clear he's going to go after the parents this time now that he can physically get revenge over what they did to him. And the kids will know that it's all their fault. That's going to be the horror of this ending. Hmm. Would it have a subtitle to it? Uh, yeah. Uh, Friday, uh, see, it'll be night, Friday on Elm Street. It'll be Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, A Study in Slumber. I'm going to give it a ridiculously classy uh, Victorian-style name. There you go. I would, hmm, if I was doing a sequel to this, I would have it um, be about, maybe a prequel, and it would be about Fred Krueger as a kid. Really? Yeah, and it would be about him. You know, he likes uh, he likes knives. At one point, for fun, he tapes knives to his fingers and wiggles them around. It'd so it's going to be of, one of those things where we where we give layered origin stories to everything that happens. Right, sort of. It's like the Hannibal Rising of the series, if you will. And uh, it would even have something. Uh, I'm not sure what it would be, but something traumatic would happen that would give him nightmares. And maybe it's like maybe it would be like when he learns the truth of um, the circumstance of his birth. Hmm. And would you would you have a new circumstance of his birth, or would you be using the same circumstance that shows up later in the franchise? I think I would come up with a new uh, with a new circumstance, but it would be something uh, I don't know. Maybe he's a child of of incest or something, or some some really something really dark hmm. that would sort of drive him into madness. And yeah, I don't think it would make him. Uh, I don't think it would make him sympathetic, but it would sort of explain more what he was. You'd also have some... He would have maybe a game with his mother where they would make jokes that are puns all the time. So so we'd get an origin for for the quips that would become... Yes, right. You'd even set up his quippy nature. (laughs) And it would be called... Uh, it would be called the original nightmare, or maybe like Elm Street or Elm Street Origins. That's my <laughs> stupid title, because that sounds like it could be a real title. Um, uh, Elm I, Street Origins Wolverine. Yeah, <laughs> and it would. Uh, yeah, that'll be part of it. His favorite <laughs> X Man is Wolverine. That's why he likes to put blades on his hands. Right, Even right. Though, Wolverine hadn't been created as a comic character until after Freddy would have grown up. No, in fact, that that would be a, maybe a, a something you tag on in the middle of the credits, a little bonus scene. Little credit scene where it, it Samuel be, Jackson shows up and tries to record, uh, record, tries to recruit Freddy into the Fear Force Five or something. Well, like what that. I was thinking is he, you know, does a drawing of a character that looks like Wolverine with the claws in his hands in crayon, and he mails it to Marvel Comics. 
<laughs> and uh, Stanley and looks we like, get, this we get is a, a great idea. Yeah, you know, we, we get a Stanley. Mm, the Wolverine, enough said. <laughs> you win a no life. prize, Mr. Kruger. <laughs> so that that's my idea. Let's go on to what you're watching. Um, Thrasher, have you had a chance to watch either the new Star Trek show or Orville yet? Regrettably, no. I have not had a chance to see uh, either, although I'm guessing you have. I have, um, but I might save that conversation for when you watch those shows. Um, well, I, I will. I will be. Um, my my wife and I we we had canceled our subscription six months ago. We had canceled our subscription to a particular streaming service. We are going to be renewing that, and so I will at least be able to watch uh, the Orville and get caught up with that. I do not know when I'm going to get a chance to watch uh, Discovery, but I will be happy to watch a few episodes of the Orville, so we can talk about that later. Sure. Um, so I'll talk about something else instead. I saw a movie, uh, pretty good, pretty unconventional, uh, based loosely in the Decameron, called The Little Hours, directed by Jeff Baina. It stars um, actors like uh, Alison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, John C. Riley, Dave Franco, and Kate Micucci. And um, I've never really? read The Decameron, which is a, a classic piece of literature, but... Um, what it's about is it takes place in the Middle Ages, which I always love that, that setting. And uh, it's a convent with a, a lot of nuns. And a, uh, a, a guy gets in trouble. Um, a guy, well, at, at, at like a neighboring kingdom or something, a guy gets in trouble for having an affair with the king's wife. And he flees to this convent where there's a lot of nuns because um, he runs into the, the priest that runs the convent on the road. And he makes a deal where he says, well, if you pretend like you're a, a deaf mute, and um, nobody will will be the wiser, and you can just live live here and be safe at the nun convent as a deaf mute. But of course, because he's the only young viral man, uh, viral man there, all the nuns try to have sex with him, and then he learns sort of a dark secret about some of the nuns. And um, the the dialogue isn't really medieval. Some of the dialogue is uh, postmodern humor, where they talk about how difficult it is to wash clothing where you use ash in the water and all these things. It was filmed, I think, in Italy, and um, with these historic, uh, you know, sort of castles or buildings, and, it, and the costumes look pretty neat. And uh, it's... Uh, the plot twist at the end is, is a bit silly, but it makes me want to read the original. I don't know if I'll ever get around to it. But it's um, also... it's. Funny how uh, Aubrey Plaza, especially, is just a very. She plays a very Aubrey Plaza type, so very aggressive, very <laughs> obnoxious. Um, like if she thinks a man is looking at her, she'll pick up a stick and start beating him. Like, stop looking at me. Why did you, Why did you call me that? Why even when people say nothing? Um, also, we get uh, who's the guy in um, who plays the guy with the mustache on that show. He's in this uh, as uh, well on Parks and Recreation. Yes. Nick Offerman, uh, yes, Nick Offerman is also in this as well, and show it. So is uh, Molly Shannon, Fred Armisen, and Paul Reiser. Well, so I've got to see this now. Yeah, a lot of really good actors, and uh, I think that the plot twist is is interesting, and I find I just find the setting fascinating. And to make this sort of classical story, or at least elements of it, into a comedy is um, is very smart. And you also deal a little bit with madness in there. And um, infertility rituals and all these things. So it goes in some interesting places. 
sort of a comedy. Uh, they call this a romance online. I, I would say that's not the case. It's, it's, it's a victim of, of needing to be categorized for uh, I think for distribution. So. I mean, yes, romances happen, but that's not the um, that's not, not the focus. It's it's a lot of slapstick humor, a lot of sort of postmodern commenting on itself humor. Um, but yeah, I, I quite liked it. The Little Hours. I think that's not a very good title, though. The title gives you no idea what it's about. Um, what's something that you've been watching? So I uh, saw the uh, live-action remake of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Oh, I, I saw that in theaters. Yeah, what do you think about it? Well, it, it exists. Um, it's... It's... It is too... It is too slavish. It's too slavish an adaptation of the movie that it's remaking, and it's also hideously overdesigned. You're talking about the Beast. Everything. Everything. Um, Everything. They're just. Yeah. They're so obsessed with putting little moving parts and flourishes on every character that I mean, the, the character gets lost. The, the worst is Cogsworth. Uh, they try so hard. To give every part of his body a plausible moving part. You don't need to do that. It's goddamn magic. I do like Ian McKellen as Cogsworth, and they give Cogsworth a little more to do, I think. Um, well, that's so that's so, so sad, is that this movie is brilliantly cast. Everyone is played by exactly the right actor for the part. But so many great performances get get buried under CGI or get lost in these kind of like over the top uh, performances like the wardrobe that keeps singing opera. It's, it becomes, it starts as a cute character affectation, but it quickly becomes unbearable. And also like casting Josh Gad as the foo and making it the subtext of his character that he's secretly attracted to Gaston. That's a, that's a decent idea. However, it makes his character in execution. It makes his character so sad and so pathetic. But they really pull their punches with that too. I mean, they oh, yeah. even in certain countries. At the end of the movie, there's a brief scene where we see him holding hands with another man. They don't even. Kiss. I looked for that scene. I did not see it. It's way in the background. They really try to hide it. Um, in, in certain countries, they cut that clip out. If they're gonna have the character be gay, just let the character be gay. Right. Just because Even if it is a time is... period where you couldn't really practice that stuff openly, it is a fantasy. There's enough wiggle room by virtue of the fact that it's a fantasy that you could do that. I mean, frankly, LeFou is so, is so put, put upon and so hopeless, I would like him to have some like a taste of a happy ending. Uh, not that we get that. I think uh, it, it has at least one or two new musical numbers in there that I think uh, the one is sort of uh, boring talking about the um, how the beast is sad. We get a, a little bit of a dark thing going on with the mother of Bell, if memory serves. Yeah, well, there's that whole like that that Paris of my mind scene, which yes. has a very boring song in it. Where yeah, well, we learned that that Bell's mother died of the plague. I'm not sure she really needs a tragic backstory. I mean, one of the one of the things about a lot of Disney's animated movies, when there's a missing parent, you can infer that the parent's dead, and you don't have to dwell on on what circumstance made that that happen. Well, and and um, the strange thing is the um the original Beauty and the Beast cartoon doesn't have that many musical numbers. Um, this was made into a, a Broadway show where they added more numbers, and um, 
there already was a, a number from that musical show with uh, her, was it Maurice? Was that her, her grandfather or uncle or whoever who raises her? Uh, it's her father. Her father, right. Has a musical number saying how much he loves his daughter. That's sort of a heartwarming sort of number. And like, you, they could have just kept that in. But no, instead they keep the song from the Broadway show Human Again, which is this, this idiotic number. Uh, okay, I will say I like that song. I, I, think, do? It's, I yeah. think it's very well written. It can be performed with a lot of gusto. Now, that special edition of the animated Beauty and the Beast where they oh yes, where they animated it, it stops the movie dead. But in the in the Broadway musical, it, it is a very good number. Okay, I've never seen the... I've listened to the Broadway album, but I've never seen it on stage. Um, it, it, on, in the stage version, it works really well. One, because it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's this kind of touching scene of Lumiere and Cogsworth just kind of reminiscing about being human and commenting on the ironic transformations that everyone underwent <laughs> after the curse went into effect. I also... Oh, they tried too hard to make the Beast sympathetic in this. And I think by, that, yeah, they don't make by, Gaston by enough of a the, dick either. Well, they give the Beast a double origin story by having it be that he was raised by a cruel king who made him cruel. Well, if he was made cruel, then he didn't make a deliberate choice when he turned the fairy queen in disguise away. And that weakens the whole premise of the movie. It does. It's too... It's too labored. It's too busy. Um, I mean, but as I said, there were things I liked. The cast was wonderful. Uh, the the there the new version of Be Our Guest it, it gets very overproduced and is too in love with CGI. It's a very good rendition of the song. Although part of me, I would rather see I would rather see acrobats in costumes doing an elaborate dance number. Uh, just the way the way they use CGI takes a lot of life out of it. One thing I thought was funny is, uh, I guess, originally, when the beast turns into human form, uh, they filmed it with him being naked. Not that you saw him naked, but at least you saw him without a shirt on. And in test screenings, they said that was too uh, too racy. So they had to reshoot <laughs> it with a version of him with like a shirt on, you know, with his clothes on, um, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Oh, boy. Um, Although the, the, the Kill the Beast number is done pretty well. Yeah, I, I wish the actor that played Gaston, or the way it was written, I wish he was more of an asshole. He seemed more, uh, more bad, in the the cartoon. Maybe just because the way he was drawn, the way he acted, and this one he seems more, I don't know, more well, more clumsy, like more a, cartoony. He's more of a fun, a charming, fun-loving rogue yes. in the way that he's executed, right. as opposed to just this boorish, overbearing individual, which is what, yeah. probably where they should have set their sights. Um, and I don't think it helps that the actor is sort of um, kind of skinny and slight, and uh, he looks like a second-rate Orlando Bloom. I mean, but it, he, he's done a lot. Of, he's Luke Evans. He's been in the two out of the three Hobbit movies as Bard, the uh, the human who shoots down smog, and um, yeah. So one thing that that really stuck with me though, there's a completely useless subplot where the wardrobe is in love with the harpsichord, and the harpsichord loves her back. I think they're supposed to have been married before the curse came down. But there's this whole thing where they, they can't see each other. But it's never established why, because in the, the, when the villagers attack the castle, there is, this, like, in that fight scene, both the harpsichord and the wardrobe go to the foyer to join the fight. 
Like nothing, nothing was ever stopping them from making that journey. So what was this? I can only assume that that's like a vestigial plot left over from an earlier draft of the script. I don't know, but um, I actually have to get going and have to get my day started here. So, we have um, prattled on. We have prattled on. So be sure to tune in next week. We'll be talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. As the poster says, The Man of Your Dreams is back. This one has a lot of um, homoerotic overtones. Uh, it's up in the air, d- depending on who you talk to, it's intentional or not. But um, it certainly makes it a more interesting film if you read it in that fashion. So be... I am really looking forward to this one. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, People claim this is the worst one, but I will disagree. But we'll talk about that next week, Elm Street 2. <laughs> uh, follow me on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow me on Twitter, at Internet Mayor. For the sequel cast, too, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Well, the judge got fat and the lawyer got famous. That is such a writerly line. It is. I'm sure Wes Craven felt clever as he wrote it. You know what, well, Elm, like, you know what Elm Street movie Wes Craven hated the most? Well, which one? Guess. Uh, New Nightmare? No, he wrote that one himself, but he um, he disliked uh, the remake because he thought uh, it was unoriginal and didn't take enough chances. Interesting. I thought it would have been Freddy's Dead, but hey. <laughs> or Freddy vs. Jason. I like Freddy vs. Jason. I still haven't seen that one. Maybe oh. maybe we'll have to do a commentary for that as maybe. part of this cycle. Um, and the one thing about Freddy vs. Jason, which my friend uh, in high school, Zach, said, and he's right, is um, it's more of a Freddy movie than a Jason movie. Yeah, I, I've been told that, too. But it's, um, yeah, they really go for it, and it was originally supposed to have an ending where uh, both characters get, have you heard about this? Both characters get dragged into hell, and um, Pinhead is there saying, I, we have such sights to show you, gentlemen. And then it would have ended. Yes, I had heard uh, that they were trying to weave in yeah, a third layer of crossover. Which would have been amazing. But um, anyway. And does that mean does that mean if that would have happened, you would have had a movie where Freddy and Jason team up to fight the Cenobites? <laughs> I don't know. Like That idea is so crazy, I, I want to see it. Yeah, CD Man would uh, get his revenge. Oh, it would All have right. to be the CD uh, Man. It would have to be what? It would have to be the CD Cenobite. And you do find out there's also a cassette tape Cenobite and an 8-track Cenobite. There would also be a new media format Cenobite (laughs) who has uh, USB drives and Wi-Fi. And he can make wires spit out of the inputs. Yeah. Um, Okay, anyway, next week, Elm Street 2. Sorry, Nightmare in Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the C. Listen to his music at markwiththec.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequel Cast 2 to give it a listen.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.